This is a show we at FDD's Foreign Policy have been eager to record and share for some time. But we couldn't talk about these issues because there was a trial taking place. Then, earlier this month, a federal jury in New York found a Turkish banker by the name of Mehmet Hakan Attila guilty of facilitating a massive sanctions-busting scheme, one that moved tens of billions of dollars from Turkey to the Islamic Republic of Iran. The scheme involves secret and illicit trades of Turkish gold in exchange for Iranian oil. This scheme was carried out as the U.S. was attempting to use sanctions, economic pressure, in response to revelations regarding Tehran's illicit nuclear weapons program. We now know that this was the largest sanctions evasion scheme in history and that it involved top government officials from both Turkey and Iran. FDD staff had long been conducting research in this area. As a result, FDD's Mark Dubowitz testified as an expert witness. On the first day of the trial, FDD's John Shanzer was also tapped as an expert witness, though in the end, he was not called to the stand. John and Mark, along with former Turkish parliamentarian and FDD senior fellow Icon Erdemir, as well as FDD researcher Merve Tahirlu, worked closely with the Department of Justice and the FBI for 14 months preparing for the trial. On this week's episode of Foreign Policy, I'm joined by this team to unravel the story and discuss its many implications. This is Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. So the story we're going to tell today has to do with oil, gold, people becoming fabulously wealthy, money laundering, the Middle East, terrorism, all sorts of interesting things. But it's a complicated story. So let's try to make it fairly simple. Jonathan Chancer, I'm going to start with you. The U.S. puts sanctions on Iran. Under what authority and to what end? So the U.S. has been steadily placing sanctions uh, on Iran since the uh, – well, let's say for about the last decade. Uh, it, what began as uh, simply a campaign to uh, sanction Iran for terrorism rapidly evolved into a campaign also to try to prevent Iran from going nuclear. Uh, Iran had an illicit nuclear weapons program that they hadn't admitted but that we found out about. That's correct. We also began to sanction them for uh, missiles and human rights violations, cyber issues. So in other words, there was a range of issues where we found ourselves at odds with the Iranian regime. Uh, and what we saw was a sanctions architecture that was steadily being built up to deny Iran American cash and increasingly Western cash and access to our banking system. And why should anyone who's not an American uh, say, yeah, I'm restricted by American laws? Why shouldn't they say this has nothing to do with me? Well, the key to our sanctions program uh, was based on the fact that ours is the most powerful financial system in the world. If you wanted to continue to work with the United States, you had a choice. You could work with Iran or you could work with us. 
but you couldn't do both. And this was the message that our treasury officials were conveying to banks and corporations and countries all around the world. So if you say you're complying with these, but you're not, you're violating laws. And if you're in the U.S., you can be prosecuted for violating those laws. That is correct. Uh, we also have seen instances in the past where the U.S. has levied fines uh, against companies uh, that have engaged in business with sanctioned entities. So there, there are wide-reaching ramifications for violations of our sanctions. And I would say that the Iran sanctions regime was probably the toughest enforced out of any other regime that I can remember. ICON, Turkey is a NATO ally. The government of Turkey, they agreed to honor these sanctions and work with the U.S. initially because they understood that Iran was doing things that, were, that they should, Iran should not be doing and should be curbed. That is correct. But at the same time, there is a caveat here, and that is although Turkey is a NATO member, we have to remind our audiences that since 2002, Turkey has been run by an Islamist government and an increasingly autocratic one-man ruler, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And there is a lot of doublespeak there. That is, on the one hand, Turkey continues to be a NATO member, but at the same time, Turkey is at the forefront of the efforts to undermine the transatlantic alliance and Western values. And Merve, if you think about what Erdogan, who now runs Turkey in a, as an authoritarian and as an Islamist, how does he view Iran? Well, that's a complicated question because Turkey, traditionally Turkey's uh, foreign policy, sees Iran as sort of a frenemy. Um, they didn't have the best relationship, but Erdogan has some Islamist uh, identification with Iran. And it actually isn't that surprising at the end of the day that Erdogan and his government would facilitate such a sanctions-busting scheme with Iran, unlike any other government that we can think of um, that would have ruled Turkey. Go ahead, John. Well, I, I think the, another important thing to point out is uh, that the Iranians uh, have had an interesting relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood, that they have not necessarily been at odds with one another since the founding of the Islamic Republic in 1979, but rather it's been kind of a symbiotic relationship, that they see uh, the downfall of the West as a common goal. And Erdogan uh, identifies with the Muslim Brotherhood ideology. So it's not surprising to see him align in some way with the Iranians. But what is surprising in this case is, uh, especially since the start of the fighting in Syria, Erdogan has been at the forefront uh, of uh, criticism against Assad and uh, the, the killings in Syria. But now, following uh, the Attila case and kind of the Zarab sanction-busting uh, scheme, we know that while Erdogan was shedding crocodile tears over the civilians killed in Syria, he was actually the number one facilitator and enabler uh, of uh, Iranian war efforts uh, in Syria because ultimately Erdogan kept the cash pouring into the Iranian fighting machine. All right, so now we've raised two names, Attila and Zarab, and we need to know who the, these are. These two gentlemen came on the radar screen of law enforcement, but even before that happened, John, you were looking at various possible sanctions-busting schemes that, were take, that you believed might be taking place between Turkey and Iran. Tell us about your research before law enforcement became involved, and then how law enforcement became involved. Sure. So the story begins in 2012 uh, when reports uh, began to emerge that uh, Turkey was exporting uh, a huge amount of gold to Iran. 
uh, and uh, this was helping Iran uh, basically evade sanctions to the tune of roughly 12, 13, 14 billion dollars. Billion dollars. Billion dollars, with a B. So a remarkable number, especially when one considers the fact that the cash reserves that Iran had on hand at the height of our sanctions regime was probably around 20 billion dollars. So we're talking about really filling Iran's coffers right at the moment where they were really feeling the squeeze from U.S. sanctions. So this was obviously important to FDD as an organization that had been tracking uh, Iran and Iran's sanctions. And we had uh, developed this uh, growing interest in Turkey for the reasons that we've discussed already, that it has grown increasingly Islamist. So we begin to look into this. We learn more about it. It does appear that Iran has uh, used Turkey to help evade sanctions. But the United States at the time says, well, this was all done with uh, Turkish uh, and Iranian uh, private sector individuals. This was not government to government, and therefore it was not a, uh, an overt violation of sanctions. We saw this as a loophole that needed to be closed. Thankfully, so did Congress. So they did close that loophole. Although inexplicably at the time in 2013, the Obama administration left the loophole open for an additional six months, allowing for the remainder of the transactions to continue. Is the suspicion here that the Obama administration left the loophole open because they were working on getting a deal, a nuclear weapons deal, which eventually became the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action with Iran, and so they didn't want to put too much pressure on Iran. They were afraid too much pressure would make Iran skittish and move away from the deal. So they left some loopholes. They thought less pressure rather than more was the answer to getting the deal they wanted. I, I think that's a plausible explanation. I think uh, we could also suggest perhaps that allowing those funds to continue to flow for an additional six months could have been a deal sweetener to keep Iran at the table or, or to induce them to, to stay there uh, now that the negotiations were already underway. What happened after that, though, is, is I think uh, even more interesting. There was a uh, scandal that erupted inside Turkey where we learned about high-level officials engaging in corruption, graft, bribery uh, as part of uh, a sanctions-busting scheme with Iran that the head of uh, Turkey's state-owned bank was I – mean, his home was raided and they found millions of dollars in shoeboxes in his home. Uh, a number of individuals were accused of taking bribes by one individual, a gold trader by the name of Reza Zarab. This is the guy who became the central figure in this court case that just uh, concluded in New York. And as we've learned since that he was the focal point for the gas for gold trade that we mentioned, that uh, 12, 13, $14 billion uh, in 2012 and 2013, then he moved into fictitious invoicing for food and humanitarian assistance and then found himself drifting back into gold again all the way up until 2016. Let's, uh, let's draw his picture a, a little more clearly. Merve, Zarab is Turkish and Iranian, yes. fabulously rich, and married to a Turkish celebrity. Yes, a mega pop star, actually, <laughs> by the name of Ebru Gündesh. Yeah, what we know about Zarab is that he was born in Iran, but I think uh, around the age of one and a half or two, he moved to Turkey. And he said he lived in Dubai for about uh, for a couple of years um, in his youth, but he Turkish is his mother tongue language. He speaks Turkish uh, fluently. He does. He said he doesn't speak Farsi that well. Um, so he's a he's a well known Turkish figure, and he's a he's a well known. Uh, 
businessman because of the corruption scandal that John just referred to. And very wealthy. Yes, very wealthy, uh, both from his own family, uh, his Iranian family, his father's side, but also uh, due to his marriage to this mega pop star. And uh, one day he decides to take his family to Disney World. Yes. <laughs> this was uh, in March 2016. Uh, he flew with his uh, wife and, his, uh, and their child and their nanny uh, to Miami International Airport. And when they arrive, U.S. authorities arrested Zaraba and it was a huge story in Turkey because the man who had been at the center of the corruption scandal in December 2013 and who had been exonerated of all the charges thanks to Erdogan's personal intervention with the Turkish judiciary um, was arrested in the United States so it, it, it was a huge scandal and and so the last thing he expected is to go down to Disney World and end up in jail and the last thing you expected was for federal law enforcement uh, officials to come into your office and say, we need to talk to you about your work. Well, that's right, because for for years, uh, we had been uh, stressing the fact that this did appear uh, to be uh, violations of U.S. sanctions on a mass scale, that we were looking at potentially more than $100 billion, according to some estimates, from the beginning of the scandal in 2012 up until 2016. There's a huge amount of money uh, that was being laundered uh, on behalf of the Iranian regime in what appeared to be a blatant violation. And so uh, we had talked to Treasury, we had talked to the State Department, we had talked to various members of Congress. And no one seemed to want to touch this, uh, that uh, the Obama administration appeared to be sheltering the Iranians. Many lawmakers and officials appeared nervous about getting involved with Turkey, given that it was a NATO ally, given that uh, it was crucial in our efforts to, uh, to uh, help try to contain the war in Syria, that it was the choke point for a lot of refugees coming into Europe. There's a lot of nerves there. And so finally, when we did uh, receive a visit from uh, the Department of Justice in October of 2016, it did come as a surprise, a pleasant one. <laughs> uh, and uh, and it obviously, it was just a few months after this arrest of Reza Zarab in Florida. Uh, so we were obviously aware of the fact that, that DOJ had gotten involved. We just didn't know quite the extent to which they were involved here with, with, with this case and how far they wanted to take it. I kind of, Reza Zarab's got plenty of money. He can hire the best lawyers and initially hire some of the most famous lawyers he can find in the United States. But in the end, he decides he's not going to proclaim his innocence. Yes, uh, actually Reza Zarab uh, earlier in his career uh, managed to use the Turkish government's influence over the judiciary and the police to basically get out of jail for free. Uh, you know, not free. Of course, he had to make a, lot, a number of donations uh, to notable figures and their families in Turkey. Uh, but once in the U.S., I think he realized that the judiciary works differently. Once he saw the uh, the, the, the concrete evidence against him, uh, he, he decided to turn, you know, uh, state's evidence in. Uh, and that's when we see a very different Reza Zarab. You know, back in Turkey uh, with Erdogan covering his tracks, Reza Zarab felt invincible. He was on TV. Even after his initial arrest uh, and release in Turkey, he was very proud. He was on TV. He was receiving medals for his contributions to Turkish export figures. But once uh, in U.S. and under custody, uh, I think he realized that uh, the only way uh, not to spend a life in jail uh, would be to cooperate uh, and then spill the beans on this whole enterprise that involved 
the Turkish government to the very, very highest levels. So in other words, he says to the U.S. government, I'm going to admit my guilt. I'm going to work a deal with you. I'm going to cooperate. I'm going to explain to you how we did this, how we managed to evade sanctions and launder money. And I'll stand up in court and do it. Right, Mary? Exactly. And uh, he did just that. And as part of his witness protection agreement, which he reiterated in the courtrooms, that the, the most important point was that he had to be completely truthful in his answers um, while talking to the prosecution. And that's been a question that's been raised in the media. Was he being truthful in this trial? And I think... Um, Although we do know that Zarab is a is a liar and and he is a corrupt man, businessman, um, he did have a huge interest, vested interest in this particular trial to tell the truth. So uh, all the, all the uh, information that he walked to the courtroom through, I think um, we could trust it. And a little bit of color, just to, to add. In, initially, if I recall correctly, he gets in, up in front of the courtroom in prison garb. Although eventually, the court allows him to put on a business suit. And he's essentially, and I think you described it this way, John, he's sort of like a business school professor with charts. And I mean, it's a compli- it, this is not a simple thing. He's showing how many layers you need to go through if you want to avoid detection by anyone. Talk a little bit about his testimony and, and, and kind of how startling it was to everybody to see him give this kind of master class in sanctions, evasion, and money laundering. So we've now seen uh, the evidence uh, that uh, the Department of Justice uh, used in this trial. And in fact, uh, three pieces of evidence are now from these dry erase boards that Reza Zarab used during the trial. One of these screenshots includes his gas for gold scheme, and it is a remarkable flowchart, uh, you know, with dozens of entities and squiggly lines and dotted lines and arrows going in every different direction. It was sort of a beautiful mind, if you will. I mean, really, you could just get a sense of how complex this was and how he had it all in his head. Uh, at any given time. There is another uh, screenshot of a dry erase board where he talks about the food invoicing, the false invoices that he used, which was phase two uh, of his sanctions busting scheme. And again, again, it's all these different dotted lines and flow charts. And then there is one more where he uh, was identifying uh, uh, other banks, other entities that were used in his schemes to show the international nature of all of this. But he's doing all of this in in a blazer uh, and and a button down shirt, and uh, you get and, and he's very comfortable with himself as he's talking about all of these things. And one gets a sense that he if he if he didn't go in this direction, he could have been at University of Pennsylvania or Harvard at the business schools explaining this is how corruption works. Well, he's a brilliant businessman. He's a brilliant financial mind, isn't he? I mean, that becomes very clear as people, people watch him, right? Well, it's funny. We've looked at the, at the evidence now, and um, it was just brazen. I mean, he went right through the front door. I mean, he was brilliant in, in, in the sense that he realized that he could pull off the sanctions-busting scheme of the century. I believe this is larger than uh, oil for food. It's larger than anything we've ever seen before in modern history, but he barely hit it. What he found was that there was a, a rogue regime in Tehran that wanted to do this. He found that there was a, a rogue leader in Turkey who was willing to have it happen as well as long as it was able to line his pockets or those of some of his closest colleagues. And so he was the, the right man for the job. Uh, but it wasn't as tricky, let's say, as one might have expected. Zarab is saying, I've done it. I'm going to tell you how I'm going to come clean. But Attila... 
He's another character who gets brought into this. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of surprising for all of us when uh, Hakan Attila actually, his name, full name is Mehmet Hakan Attila. He has three names, and all of them are first names in Turkish. Mm. So it, it mm. does get confusing for everyone. But when he was uh, arrested in, in late 2016, it was a surprise. Uh, we at FTD had been watching Zarab's network pretty closely. Uh, I had personally read the, the Istanbul prosecutor's report on Zarab and his activities several times. Um, and this was not a name that we were familiar with. Uh, he was a deputy general manager at uh, Hulk Bank, the state-owned bank that was at the center of, of this entire scheme. And we knew that the CEO, the general manager of the bank, Suleyman Aslan, had been a huge part of, of, of Zarab's network and in, in this scheme. Uh, but we didn't know about uh, Hakan Attila's role per se. And that was what was at dispute, essentially, at this trial. That's what the defense tried to argue. They tried to show that uh, Attila was actually not part of the scheme, that he didn't know about what was happening. But looking at the evidence, it's, it's, pretty, it's, it's pretty hard uh, to be a, a high-level official at this bank and, and not know what's happening, especially in, in Hakan Attila's position. He was in charge of international banking. He had taken Hulk Bank through two IPO processes, and, and he was the one uh, accompanying the CEO, Suleyman Aslan, in all their meetings with the U.S. Treasury officials and OFAC officials. So he was a pretty important person, and uh, it's, it's hard to see that he uh, wouldn't know about this and, 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 and not facilitate this scheme, in which the jury found him guilty of. So uh. He could have done what Zarab did and said, okay, let me turn straight evidence. Let me explain what happened. Let me get a minimum sentence for this. But he didn't. He decided, I'm going to defend myself and see if I can get off. Yeah, and I think it is surprising because if he had more of a facilitator's role and he wasn't at the heart of this, one might have expected Attila to be the first to turn state's evidence and then let uh, Zarab hang out to dry since he was the mastermind behind all of this. It would have been, I think, far more gratifying to see the one to see Zarab be the one who would go to jail for the rest of his life uh, as opposed to this mid-level bank manager or, you know, uh, maybe not quite mid-level. He was up there pretty high. But it's interesting when one looks at uh, the evidence, uh, as we have, you see him sending the gold figures to the CEO sharing what their progress appears to be several months into the scheme. Uh, at one point, we see an email that he sends to the CEO. It's a draft email to the Undersecretary of the Treasury assuring him that we were abiding by the sanctions regime. So it becomes very clear that he knew what was going on. He understood the scheme. He understood the bank's role in the scheme. So uh, it was fitting to see him go to jail, just perhaps not as gratifying as it might have been to see Zarab go to jail. And we have to, again, remind our audience that there are still a number of high-ranked Turkish officials at large who are part of the indictment, including the CEO of Halkbank, Süleyman Aslan, as well as uh, then-economy uh, minister uh, Zafer Çalayan. So uh, this case is not just about, you know, the mastermind sanction buster uh, Reza Zarab and this, let's say, deputy general manager uh, Attila, but there are a number of accomplices, uh, including, uh, you know, Turkish ministers and well, uh, there's two things I state wanna, bank CEOs. I want to get out of here. One is Attila was convicted of what specific crimes? There were six charges. Uh, Attila was found guilty on four counts of conspiracy, uh, one count of bank fraud, and he was acquitted of money laundering. And what one thing we do know is that he and others and quite a few made a real, not a small fortune, but a big fortune by skimming off some of the money that was going back and forth between 
Iran and Turkey. When we were talking about bribery and we're talking about skimming, we're talking about fortunes being made from this. Am I correct? Yeah. I, I mean, Zarab was the one who cashed in uh, significantly. He was the one he estimated uh, that he pulled in around $150 million uh, based on the transactions that he conducted on behalf of Iran and Turkey. Mm-hmm. It's unclear uh, whether uh, Attila uh, received much, if anything, hmm. for this, but it, it does appear, at least according to Zarab, uh, that he uh, facilitated bribes uh, to some of these high-ranking officials that uh, Icon just mentioned, uh, and that Chalayan, the the economy minister, received somewhere between forty to fifty million dollars in bribes during the uh, the course of this scheme. I just want to add that there was a funny moment in the trial when Zara was explaining his bribe relationships, and it and it seemed to the courtroom from what he explained um, it was that the, the Suleiman Aslan, the CEO of the bank, uh, I think may have uh, made a lot of. Profit from this entire scheme because Zarab was heard over and again in phone calls that were played in the courtroom to his to his associates complaining about how every time he has to ask the CEO a question he ends up having to owe him so much money in bribes, um, which is funny to us now. It shouldn't be funny, uh, but um, it, it, even even Zarab was actually complaining about how much he had to pay in bribes to the economy minister and the CEO. Um, so how confident should we be that all of the highest levels, and that by the highest levels I mean President Erdogan, knew what was going on and gave his blessing to this scheme? Do we know that? Does the U.S. government accept that or are they leaving that door open? Talk about what we know about whether that whether this was a product of, this, of the government of, of Turkey. So first of all, uh, Zarab himself says that Erdogan knew about this scheme. Uh, how much Erdogan knew about all of the different details, I think, you know, we can only guess. But he certainly was aware of who Zarab was. And the reason why we know this is that in 2015, Zarab received an award from the Turkish Exporters Assembly. And Erdogan was in the audience applauding him. Uh, and he, he was lauded for, his, uh, for the contribution that he made to the Turkish economy. So uh, it, it was really bold. It was brazen. Uh, and again, the, uh, the Turkish government, uh, obviously at very high levels, the finance or the economy minister, uh, the CEO of a state, the second largest state-owned bank in Turkey, the, uh, the, the, the prime minister, they all were aware of what was going on. I think, again, it's just now about details. How much of it did they, did they understand was happening? And, and by the way, that this whole deal was not just about personal enrichment uh, of Turkey's political class. At the same time, there was a, another motivation, and that is in the run-up to uh, Turkey's uh, upcoming local elections of 2014, the Erdogan government had all the reasons uh, to basically beef up the macroeconomic indicators, uh, because ultimately uh, Zarab's sanction-busting activity uh, inflated Turkish export figures. Uh, it brought down Turkey's current account deficit. Uh, in, in, in fact, uh, when you take a look at uh, the Turkish official figures uh, from that era, you can see how uh, surgically they use sanction-busting efforts 
to bring the current account deficit right below $100 billion, which would have been psychologically a big defeat for the Erdogan government. So they made sure through this kind of gold exports that Turkey's current account deficit was at $99 billion, $999 million, which is... If you act today, only $99 million, not a penny more. You know, and I think Icon's absolutely right. I think the thing that I would add here is that it amounted to roughly 1% of GDP, which is nothing to sneeze at. Um, and also that even as this illicit activity is going on, they are, um, I mean, th they're using it as part of their economic forecasts. They are actually projecting this out. Economists are looking at this spike in gold, and the Turks are doing very little to cover it up. They, they honestly, I mean, they, they could care less. They're just saying, hey, look, look at our numbers. Mm -hmm. This was their approach at the time. And, al and although Erdogan is an authoritarian, he still faces the electorate in various ways, and he was using this to boost his numbers, was he not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as Icon suggested, it was uh, right before a local election and also right before the presidential elections in Turkey in 2014 when, when uh, this corruption scandal happened. So it was a very important moment for uh, Erdogan to actually have the, the economy look better than it did at the time because that was when the 10-year the growth story that Erdogan had, had been boasting about um, was coming to an end. The, the economy wasn't doing as well as it as it had the growth wasn't as high as it was so uh, there were many important reasons for him to to have the economy look better right before this election it was pretty consequential for him this is the election that he stopped being the prime minister and became the president mm -hmm. and since then he has been using his role as president to try to change Turkey's constitution and change the entire regime really so this was the most important step for that and uh, it was an opportune time so you have President Erdogan, theoretically a NATO ally, undermining U.S. policy, complicit in the violation of U.S. laws, all for his personal interest. There's a lot of reason for the U.S. to be angry with Erdogan. But in fact, Erdogan is angry, in particular with you, Icon, and with you, John. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, yes, this is, uh, you know, a, a typical uh, kind of play from Erdogan's book. Uh, he has, uh, on, on the first day of uh, the, the jury trial, uh, when uh, FDD CEO Mark Dubovitz was to appear as an expert with this, uh, I was slapped with an uh, arrest warrant. Uh, I guess this was Erdogan's way to try to intimidate FDD and FDD expert witnesses, both Mark and John. And at the same time, back at home, uh, the very same day Erdogan was dealing with a, a, an offshore crisis, you know, the main opposition party was exposing Erdogan's offshore accounts. So Erdogan felt the heat coming both from, the, you know, New York Southern District Court as well as, you know, from within Turkey. So his, uh, as, as a former soccer player, Erdogan believes in offense as the best defense. So he came after me. Uh, uh, first with an arrest warrant and then a week later uh, by uh, seizing uh, my assets in Turkey, which is very typical of Erdogan. You know, I'm just one of the millions in Turkey who are now suffering uh, under this kind of very brutish regime. Uh, but I guess one detail Erdogan missed is uh, neither I nor any of my FDD colleagues are easy to intimidate. And the, the Turkish media, much of which is controlled by the government at this point, sadly, um, you got your pictures in the paper. 
I did, uh, as did uh, Mark Dubowitz, uh, John Hanna, uh, and others from FTD. Uh, we were identified as being a member of the Fethullah Gulen uh, terrorist organization, the, the organization that was responsible for the failed coup. Well, that's and, been accused of being responsible for the failed coup. Well, Take a minute to uh, just tell who Fethullah Gulen is for people who may not know. So this is a reclusive cleric who uh, sought shelter in the United States back in the late 1990s. He has been living out in uh, the Poconos now uh, ever since arriving here. And um, he has uh, a network of uh, people who are uh, loyal to him in Turkey, but also around the world. Um, it is a large network. Uh, they build themselves as uh, moderate Muslims. Uh, they were initially allies of Erdogan in the early years of his uh, of his rule as prime minister, but they had a falling out right around the time that this corruption scandal broke. And uh, ever since then, they have turned into mortal enemies. And uh, Erdogan blames Gulen for the coup attempt. Where the evidence of that is not abundant, he's asked or demanded the U.S. government extradite him for trial back to Turkey. The U.S. government says we cannot do that unless there's substantial evidence, which we don't have. So let's talk in the last few minutes we have about the impact of all of this uh, on on NATO and on U.S.-Turkish relations. We don't know exactly, but none of this can be good. You know, it's not. And, and one of the things that we've looked at here um, uh, at FDD has been uh, this uh, slow descent into Islamist authoritarianism uh, on the part of the Erdogan government. And it's not just gas for gold, although, again, this was a huge scandal, a brazen uh, sanctions-busting scheme facilita facilitated by the Turks. And I think we will hear more about it, I, th I hope anyway, from the Department of Justice or Treasury in the months to come, perhaps a fine against Hawk Bank uh, or other punitive measures taken. But that's only, I think, a piece of the puzzle. Uh, we have watched Turkey um, basically help uh, foment jihad in Syria through its porous border. They've allowed fighters and money uh, and weapons to cross over to help the Islamist forces there. Uh, they have a large presence of Hamas inside the country, uh, a terrorist uh, group that's based in the Gaza Strip. Uh, and then there are a host of other things that we're seeing now uh, inside Turkey, domestic issues, which perhaps Merve or Icon can speak to as well. Um, in, in, in fact, Turkey uh, has not only uh, been losing its secularism and democracy, but lately Erdogan is increasingly borrowing from Tehran's playbook in putting together uh, these uh, kind of informal paramilitary forces resembling the Iranian kind of besiege and, you know, the IRGC. And, inc and increasingly, uh, there are not only these organizations, but now there are new decrees uh, providing these militias blanket immunity. Uh, and uh, this is increasingly a growing concern, uh, not only for Turkish citizens, but also for Turkey's NATO allies, because this is really a recipe for disaster uh, when uh, a government starts uh, arming its own citizens, its party loyalists, uh, and giving up basically its monopoly, the state's monopoly over the use of violence, and then providing blanket immunity uh, to these paramilitary forces. That really is a recipe for civil war and disaster.
Also, if I might just add, as if uh, Turkey had so much stability that we needed these paramilitary organizations, life is really tough for Turkish people these days. Um, in the last five years, there have been periodic suicide bombings in Turkey committed by ISIS, by uh, the PKK, and, and other, uh, which is a, a Kurdish insurgent group, and other Kurdish insurgent groups that are, that are um, uh connected to it, um, in part because of the, the the war that Erdogan restarted with, with these groups by turning nationalist for political reasons um, in 2015 after losing uh, an election. And with all these bombings, the terror, uh, the the coup attempt, corruption scandal, and we also in 2013, I, I just want to remind our audience that there were nationwide massive anti-government protests in Turkey when the, the Turkish police. Uh, attacked the protesters and killed 11 of them uh, and injured, I, I believe, more than uh, 8,000. So it, nothing has been stable in Turkey over the last five years at least, and, and, and it's really hard to, to live under such a regime and such a government. This year, Turkey canceled New Year's celebrations mm -hmm. for the first time. Uh, and and I, I know that a, a lot of my uh, Turkish friends and family were, were complaining about it. But there are very good reasons to cancel that because it's hard to be on the streets these days in Turkey under this regime. And, and that does get us to the question of NATO uh, and whether a country like Turkey belongs in NATO right now. And I would argue that uh, it, it is a country that doesn't belong at all. Uh, that it has been a reticent partner in our uh, so-called war on terror. Uh, it, it was not eager to uh, uh, let us use uh, their facilities in fighting ISIS in Syria. It was a battle uh, to be able to use a base that we've long used for NATO, the Inderlik Air Base, that also has uh, American assets and American weaponry. So uh, we see this problem. We hear about it from the Europeans who are unhappy with the Turks about the way that they have been manipulating the refugee flows coming out of Syria. Uh, they're frustrated with the autocratic style of Erdogan. They're frustrated with the Islamist adventurous policies of Erdogan. Uh, and they've been quietly grumbling about this problem for quite some time. So have American uh, officials as well. Uh, but NATO is like the Hotel California. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no one knows how to get uh, uh, a NATO ally out of the alliance. And so this has been a, uh, a sort of an intractable problem uh, for this Western alliance for some time. So we end up with a lot of problems and no simple solutions to any of it. We don't know what to do with, uh, with, with, with Turkey as a member of NATO. We can't, they can't leave. They, can't, they stay. They're not a reliable member anymore. They're no longer a nation that is evolving into a free and democratic country. Uh, they were the model at one point within the Middle East and with, certainly within among Muslim-majority countries. None of this is good news. But it's an astonishing story. I'm glad we had a chance to tell it, and there'll be more to, to talk about coming up. Thank you, Merve, Icon, and John, and uh, thanks for listening. From all of us at FDD and the Foreign Policy team, thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Foreign Policy. To learn more about the Zarb case and the extensive Turkey program at FDD, visit our website at defenddemocracy.org. You can find this episode and future episodes by subscribing to our show on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or even shoot our production team an email directly at foreignpodicy at defenddemocracy.org. Let us know how we're doing. 
We hope you'll join us again in the future, but until then, I'm Cliff May. You're listening to Foreign Policy. Foreign Policy.